Thanks, Brian. Thank you for praying. Uh, the first service, this thing kept moving forward to where it was about like that. And the people on the front row, I didn't know it, were starting to hyperventilate. And so they heard nothing of the last 10 minutes of the sermon. They were just praying that God would keep this from walking and falling. Um, my name is Jim Riggle. Um, I've been a pastor for many, many years. A year and a half ago, I, I resigned a church in Wilmington. And um, you'll see me with a young lady over here, Susan Combs. And we've been attending the church for over uh, a year. Um, today, do you, anybody know what today is? Pastor Appreciation Day. So I, I would encourage you um, to take a moment to write a note or say something to Justin and Melissa and Jay or Judy and Judy and Tristan and Abby and just thank them for their, their ministry. There's a, a thousand things that they do behind the scenes labors of love and you know god calls us in hebrews to uh to allow as they watch over our souls our responsibility is to allow them to do it with joy and not to not to be a burden to them all right and so i would encourage all of us to to think about that um justin um has given me an opportunity to preach this morning and i know when i had speakers at our church i was giving my the people's heart to whoever's standing behind this pulpit and so there's an element here where you are going to be receiving the word of god i take that very seriously i told justin earlier i'll try not to create any theological messes that he has to clean up um but i, I will say this i appreciate justin's preaching um he's a good expositor of the word of god and he's excellent with with uh thinking through the text and application and uh very very thankful to to, for him to be my shepherd, my elder, my pastor. Uh, I, I don't have PowerPoint. I don't do PowerPoint. I, I, I usually had an administrative assistant that would do that. Uh, I don't even type. Uh, so, I, 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 you know, we're flying blind here. Um, I, I will try to keep you awake. You have to work with me on that. But take out a pen, piece of paper, take out your Bibles, mark up your Bibles. We're going to be walking through the entire book of Habakkuk this morning. And I, I want to begin with this question. Um, do you ever feel like throwing in the spiritual towel? And just be done with it? Yeah. Lord, our hearts prone to wonder to leave the God I love. Right? And so you add with that, that challenge, the, the, the whys of life that we experience when life feels unfair and unreasonable and wrong and it's like it gets heavy sometimes um, um you know what do we do with the whispers in the inner recesses of our heart and soul that 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 wants to accuse god of being inactive silent and harsh to me personally um is it, is it a lack of faith to question God? Is it spiritual weakness to argue with God? Is it even okay to argue with God? Some of you might be, be struggling with, with me even saying that. Can we argue with God? And how do I handle my life when I feel drained physically, emotionally, and spiritually? You know, if tears were indelible ink instead of clear fluid, each one of us would be stained for life. We pray, we beseech God to intervene, God do something, change the circumstance, and nothing happens, and the heartbreaking situation still happens. 
Um, the painful encounters with calamities drag on and on with no end in sight. And, and you pray and you cry out and you plead and you beg and, and still the, the brutal verbal blows received from a doctor confirming a harmful diagnosis becomes a reality. Like a punch in the stomach, there's a sudden loss of someone you love even though you feel prepared because they're in hospice. Out of the blue and all of a sudden time slows down, food has lost its appeal and grief crashes over you like a a wave at the sea and we pray God intervene my marriage and still do you hear those words I want a divorce I'm done with you and you tear stain your pillow the writing out of consequences of a foolish decision years ago no matter how long you pray or no matter how you pray and what you say it follows you throughout your life like a puppy looking for treats <laughs> we watch our adult children walk away from the Lord and it creates a deep angst in, the, in, the, in our souls and we're forced to live with it daily and we cry out and we God do something and he's quiet some of you students might be going home sometime soon and, and mom and dad pull you in the living room and they'll say sweetheart mom and dad are, are done or mom's been diagnosed with cancer. And all of a sudden, your world turns upside down. You know, when I was younger, I had to deal with my own abuse for a period of five years and um, dealt with the alternative lifestyle or the gay lifestyle at, at, at 15, 16. Came to Christ at 17, went off to Bible college at, at 20. And then I buried everything and nobody knew not even my wife. And at 46, I began to deal with it. 36 years later, I began to deal with it for the first time. And here's what I wrestle with, my own crisis of faith. God, did you ordain my abuse? And if you did, what kind of love is that? And so to, to get around that, I jumped over into this category. God, you allowed this to happen in my life. But then as I pondered it, wait a minute, you're omnipotent. You could have stopped it. Why didn't you stop it? And whichever track I chose, I'm left with God being God. And that's a hard place to be. Because it played out in my marriage with anger, and I've had to go back to my kids. I got two of my boys right here, and I have a second, third one down in, in Texas, and I've had to go to them and ask forgiveness for how I treated and and as a, how I treated and being angry. But I will say this: at 46, I found the gospel in a way I've never experienced it before in my life, and now my past becomes my grace testimony. Did I wrestle with the wise of life? Did I have a personal crisis of faith? Did I want to throw in the spiritual towel as I thought through my life circumstance and how unfair it was and how it played out? Yeah. And you have your own story. And, and, and so, beloved, as we come to the book of Habakkuk, we have to understand, we're going to be learning about the theology of suffering and, and why faith walking is so critical. 
Because if we don't get it, if we don't come to the point where we say the just lives by faith, like chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk, we're going to miss it, and we're going to be more apt to, to throw in the spiritual towel and just say, look, I am done with Christianity. I'm done with it. Why is that so important, this walk of faith? Well, listen to what Peter writes in chapter 5. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. The adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What is the evil and what does he want to devour in your life this morning? What does he want to devour in my life? I mean, is that, is that, are we to take it literally? He wants to devour bone and flesh? He does want to kill us because we represent the kingdom of God. But that's not what he's trying to devour. What he wants to devour is what Peter says. He says, he says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour, resist him. Be firm in your faith. He wants to devour your faith this morning. And if he can get you to the point where you're saying, you know what, I don't know if God really cares about me. It feels like he's forgotten me. He's hidden his face from me. And I cry out, God, do something, and there's just, there's just crickets. There's just nothing. I, I, you know, I wonder if God even exists. <laughs> Jim, that's not going to happen. No. My brother-in-law went to the same Bible college and seminary I did, and he led people to Christ, and he preached. Fast forward some 40 years, and he's, he's apostatized, and he's denied Christ, and he goes on Facebook, and he's looking for weak Christians to destroy their faith. And he absolutely denies the reality of Christ and denies the, the, the trustworthiness of the Scriptures. And he's got his doctorate of theology. So how are you doing in your faith walk, beloved? Are you struggling? It's okay to struggle. It's okay to, but stay in the fight. Every morning I wake up, it's game on. You know, we, you go to King's Island, right? You go to King's Island, an amusement park. Muse, M-U-S-E, means to think deeply and reflect. You put that letter A in front of it, and it means not to think. So every time he goes to King's Island, the goal, the purpose of King's Island is to get you not to think. And I'm afraid that's sometimes how we view our life. As opposed to every time we wake up and we go out, we are in a battle for how we think and how we feel. And may God help us to line our emotions up with what we know to be true day in and day out so we don't shrink back and we don't drift and we don't neglect such a great salvation. So there's a, a the evil one has a vested interest in your soul this morning, beloved. I, I love mercy me. They, you, you know the song. I know you're able and I know you can. Save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is in you alone. Amen. I know the sorrow and I know the hurt would all go away if you just say the word. But even if you don't, my hope is in you. That's the walk of faith right there. As I get to know the body here, some of you are here and, and 
there's, there's, I'm not going to say names, but there's affliction with diseases, and it's chronic. This week, someone was diagnosed that I love dearly with cancer. Someone very close to me, because of COVID, has lost their hearing and they're deaf in the left ear. And whereas you have depth perception with your eyes, you also have ear perception. And this individual struggles with, with, with sound and where it's coming from. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in this auditorium this morning. We're very quiet about it. And I think that's why Habakkuk is, is so meaningful to me because I've had to develop a theology of suffering because my end goal is to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I don't want to shipwreck. I don't want to become like my brother-in-law where, where I curse the name of Christ. I, 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 Let your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Your goodness, Lord. What you think and what you do is always morally right. Let it tether my heart and bind this wandering heart that wants to walk away from you. That's real. That's real stuff. That's why they put it in the hymn. Because that's where we live day in and day out. And so as we come to, to the book of Habakkuk, I, I, I want to walk through this. I'm going to try and keep it as simple as I can. Um, I, I don't like using alliterations, but I have an alliteration this morning. Okay, so let me give you the overview. All right, uh, Habakkuk chapter one, we have a perplexed prophet. So if you have your bio, you can write, take a pen, write perplexed and you'll see it. Um, he's confused, he's angry with God. He has two complaints and uh, the complaints are God, do something and complaint number two, I don't like your plan. That's kind of where we live. All right, and he's perplexed and he's confused and he's very vocal to God. And it's as if he's going nose to nose with God and, and, and thumping on his chest and saying, look, guy, he says, I, I don't get you. I, I, I do something. Um, I, I don't like the plan that you're now engaged in. So a perplexed prophet. We come to chapter two. We find a patient prophet. Chapter two, verse one, he says he's just going to wait on his watch post and hear what God has to say about his complaint. And so he ceases from activity, kind of a be still and know that I am God. And then in chapter three, we find a praising prophet. And we find at the conclusion of chapter three, verses 17 through 19, probably one of the most strongest statements of faith and confidence in God in all of the scriptures. And so my question is, how do we go from chapter one and move in the waters of chapter 2 and end up in chapter 3 where on my lips there's praises and there's rejoicing and I will trust you. I know you can do this, but even if you don't, I will still hope in you. How, how do we end up here? Because I, I, would, I pray that in 10 years you are faithful to Jesus Christ. And maybe this morning you're already wrestling and you may even in your hearts, in the secret of your heart, say you're a skeptic. And I'm just, I'm just, mm, I won't deny that there's a God, but I'm not sure you can know that there is a God. And to you, I would say, beloved, I, I, I would say you, you need a, a philosophy of life not in a worldview, not only to live by, but to die by. And the claims of Christ allows us to 
a worldview to die by. All right, well, let's look at chapter one, okay? Uh, a, a, a prophet in crisis. He has a personal crisis. He's struggling. 17 verses, and uh, he says in verse two, look what he says. He says, oh, Lord, all right, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Now, understand, uh, Judah, there's, there's, the, the, there's the southern kingdom, Israel, all right, and about 100, 150 years earlier, because of their sin, Assyria came through and destroyed them and whisked them away um, in exile. All right? And for 100, 100 plus years, prophets have been saying, repent, repent to the, to the to, or that was the northern kingdom, to the southern kingdom, Judah. They're saying, repent. And so there's Zephaniah and there's, there's Habakkuk and there's Jeremiah. And they're saying, repent. And they're not repenting. And they're in a covenant relationship with God. And God in, in Exodus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy 33, he says, look, I am your God and I will bless you. Your responsibility is to, is to obey me. And if you obey me, what I will do is I will, I will pour down blessings upon you. But if you choose to disobey me because we're in a covenant relationship, all right, what I will do is I will pour down curses and I will judge you. And another nation will come in and wreak havoc on your country. And that's what's taking place. It hasn't happened yet. But what happens is, what's taking place is, look at verse 2, we see the word violence. Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? Verse 3, why do you idly look? Idly, God, you're lazy. Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife, there's contention. And so what's taking place is, is, is in a covenant community that's meant to love one another and to care for one another. There's all kinds of garbage going on. It reminds me of Corinth. I mean, what we find in, in Judah at this time is kind of like a, an Old Testament Corinth. Remember Matthew 22? A lawyer comes to Jesus trying to trap him and says, Jesus, of all the commandments, what's the greatest commandment? And, and what's the first commandment? Love who? class love who love god with heart soul mind and as you love him what's going to happen it's going to bend horizontally so that you can love your neighbor as what as yourself you know we always love ourselves no one cannot not love themselves tell you what if your body is hungry what do you do you feed it if your body is cold what do you do you warm it up if it's hot what do you do you cool it down if it's if it's dirty and sweaty what do you do you you take a you take a shower we care for our bodies so in that sense we're to care for our neighbors and so what jesus says at the end of that love the lord your god love your neighbor as yourself he says all he said the laws all he said the law and the prophets all hang on these the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, and the prophets all hang on this. On what? Love God, love one another. And the way we love one another is a barometer of how I love God. So if you judge people and you size people up and you walk away from people and you say, I don't want nothing to do with him or her, it's a barometer on your relationship with the Father. No matter if you're sitting up front and you're praising God at the songs, and if you don't love your brother or your sister in Christ and you're judging them and you fail to take the little speck out of your own eye, it's a commentary on the reality of your relationship with Christ. 
Is it easy to love people who are uh, easy to love? Wives, is it, is it easy to love your husband? Most of the time. Are there times that, that you struggle? Is it easy to love your wife? Is it easy to love your kids? So understand, as he comes to, as we come to one through four, he's saying, like, there's all this garbage going on in the, in the covenant community. And his conclusion is this. So the law is paralyzed. Justice doesn't go forth. The wicked surround the righteous and justice is perverted. He's saying, God, your law, your, this covenant relationship, and he's accusing God, he's accusing God of lacking integrity concerning the covenant relationship with Israel. He's saying, God, do something. Do something. Well, and understand, this is a dialogue. Look, look, at, verse, look at verse five. Uh, God comes back. And uh, he answers Habakkuk's complaint. And he says, look, verse 5, among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Verse 6, for behold, I'm raising up the Babylonians. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Now, in verse 5, there, God drops a bombshell on, on Habakkuk. He says, yeah, I, I am doing something. You don't know that I'm doing something, but I am doing something. You see, 1,400 miles to the east, there's this guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, and I, you know, right now, the Assyrians are the superpower of the day, but Nebuchadnezzar is going to be the new superpower bad boy, and, and he's going to come to, to preeminence, and he's going to come over the fertile crescent, and he's going to come down to Judah, and I will use him as, as my disciplining tool. I'm doing something. You know, and, and I, you know, just, just let you know, I, I, I find hope in that little phrase. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. John Piper says this, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of only three of them. Not only may you see a tiny fraction of what God is doing in your life, the part you do see may make no sense to you at all. And that's a, that's a true statement. But God is always at work in your life and, and moving and, 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 and bringing things in and out of your life. He's, he, he's got you right where he wants you. Now, what we find after verse 6, he just says, here's the Babylonians. Here's who they are. And in verse 8, he compares their horses are swifter than leopards. Verse 8, they're fierce than the evening wolf. Uh, verse 8, they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. All right. Babylon's military might is to be dreaded and feared in verse 7. And these are uh, a people, this is a, a military force that scoffs and laughs at rulers. So the tension in verses 1 through 4, God, you're inactive, okay? Do something. 5 through 11, God says, okay, I'm doing something. I'm answering this complaint, and I'm raising up the Babylonians, and I will use them to judge Judah. And so it resolves this tension, but now it creates another second question, tension in Habakkuk's life. 
And we find that in verses 12 through 17. Habakkuk comes back, and you may have at the top of verse 12 a second complaint. And basically, as we sum up the rest of the chapter, he's saying, God, look, he said, you cannot use the ruthless Babylonians to punish your chosen people. It's unjustifiable. It's, it's, it's totally inappropriate. And it didn't make sense to Habakkuk that God would punish the wickedness of Judah using a nation that's more wicked than Judah themselves. And so he comes back in verse 12, and he says, God, you're too holy to do such a thing. It's almost like, he's almost like throwing up the character of God and kind of strong-arming him and saying, you know, you really can't do it. Well, why? He says, because you're too holy to do such a thing, verse 12. Your eyes are too pure to see this kind of evil and look at wrong, verse 13. And besides, verse 17, 15 through 17, um, their destruction will have no end. Once they begin filling their nets, and he uses the imagery, okay, of fishermen, once they begin filling their nets, with other nations, there will be no stopping them. So God, I don't like your plan. And in our walk of faith and in our spiritual growth and development, we have to wrestle with those two questions. God, do something. Why aren't you doing something? And God, I don't like your plan. Because sometimes his plan hurts. You know, you go into First Peter chapter one, verses six through nine, and there's he's writing to the the people of uh, scattered all over Asia Minor, and Peter writes this, and he says, "Rejoice um, in your grievous trials, since necessary for the building up of your faith." Who who decides that it's necessary for us to go through grievous trials? You look at the context, and it's God. And so as we walk in our grievous trials and our hardships and our adversity and our sorrows, there's a divine design behind it because God is concerned about our faith and the growing of our faith. And I'm reminded of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. He says, rejoice. He says, tribulation gives way to endurance and perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character gives way to hope or an anticipated reality. God's resistance training program is all about adversity and sorrow and heartache. Now, you and I live in sin-cursed bodies, and we're in sin-cursed relationships, and we live in a sin-cursed world. It's like Proverbs, that's why the author of Proverbs says, the heaviness of a man Right, causes his shoulders to stoop and there's times we just go around like this and it's just heavy it's because of the sin curse that we live under and so God you can't do this now what's interesting let me just kind of do a parenthesis uh, God never rebukes Habakkuk for the way he speaks to him ever which I find tremendously refreshing and I think the conclusion is that God delights in my honesty and that my honesty doesn't give him a bad hair day. Can you make God sad like we're sad? First Timothy 1.11 says God is the blessed God. It's the Greek word makarios. It means God is the happy God. 
it's a, the Hebrew synonym is found in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man or happy is the man. And so God is happy. If there's a billion Christians on the earth who um, struggle with sin, can we give God a bad hair day? I think it's something we have to think about. Johnny, don't do that. You're going to make God sad. Really? I, I don't know about that. Man, if, if I could make God sad, I... Whew. I haven't loved God with my heart, mind, and soul today, so I broke that commandment. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I've broken that commandment. God is self-sufficient. He takes delight and joy in himself. And so when I come before him and I'm struggling and I'm angry and I, 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 and I, 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 I am uh, uh, confused and perplexed and I don't get him and I, 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 I share that with him, Real quick, go, go to Psalm 13. Real quick, I got to show you this. I got to keep an eye on the time. In Psalm 13, now this is David, a man after God's own heart. Look what he says. The Psalm of David. He wrote this. It's a, it's a poem. It's a, it's a chronicling that he wrote. How long, O oh God, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I mean, here's a guy that's, that's struggling, and God is silent. And so in verses 3 and 4, he comes back and he pleads with him. He says, God, consider and answer me. Man, Oh, Lord, my God, light, my, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. God, you have got to do something here. But look what he says in 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. Now, understand the steadfast love that he's talking about here is the Hebrew word chesed, and it's a covenant love. And it's a love that, that God has towards David and God has towards Israel and Judah and God has towards us because we're under the new covenant. And it's a love that says, here's a love, Jim, that, will, that won't quit. It's unstoppable. It won't run out on you. It won't let go. And it's not based on your performance. That's the love that he has for us. That's the steadfast love that endures forever. Psalm 136. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation or in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully to me. And God never rebuked David for crying out to him like this. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? My God, my God. What? Why? Why have you forsaken me? And if the Son of Man is crying out why on the cross, what makes us think you and I will walk on this earth unscathed by that question why?
And so the curtain closes on chapter 1. We come to Act chapter 2. It's kind of like a play. We come to Act chapter 2. And um, we find verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post, my station, myself on the tower. I will look to see what he, God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning, and what he will answer concerning my complaint. And so he's, he's come to chapter 2. He's taken a position of, of be still and know that I'm God, and I will just wait on him. Now, what, what God does is, is um, he reminds Habakkuk in verses 2 through the end of the verse. He said, look, now let me address this question of using a nation more wicked than, than, than Judah, and Judah's going to be suffering. How can I do that? And he says, look, in, 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 in verses 2 through the end of the chapter, he says, Judah's not going to get away with this. I got him. It looks like they're getting away with it. It, it, it will look like their, their gods, the Babylonians' gods, are stronger than Yahweh of, of, and Jehovah of Israel, but that's not true. Because look what's going to happen. And he pronounces five woes, oracles, five judgments on them. Let me go through these real quick. Verses 6 through 8, he says, The Babylonians will be judged for their thievery. They come in and they steal and they ravage. Verses 9 through 11, they're, they're going to be judged for their arrogance. God gives grace to the humble, but what does he do to the, the, those who are proud? He opposes them and then verses 12 through 14 they're going to be judged for the brutality because they build towns with blood they found it they 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 found cities on iniquity and then at the end of the third woe while god is judging them look what verse 14 says for the earth is the the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover their sea as he is as he is um, judging the nation babylon god's glory is going to be revealed and and people will wow because he's on his throne And judgment will fall on this great empire, and God's glory will be evident for all to see. Well, there's a there's a, a another woe, verse uh, verse um, fifteen, and they're going to be judged for their indecency because they give their neighbor drink and they look upon their nakedness. And then the the other woe is they're going to be judged for their idolatry in verses 18 through 19. And then look what he says at the end of the, of the fifth woe, verse 20. Look what he says. But the Lord is in his holy place, in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent. So intermingled in this judgment on Babylon, we find the greatness and, and that God is magnanimous and his, his majesty is lifted up. And he's on his throne. He's in his holy temple. God has not abdicated his throne. He's not curled up somewhere napping. That's why the psalmist says in, in Psalm 121, God does not slumber when we are asleep. He's not on vacation, nor is the world running amok without a helmsman. God, you know, God has this world exactly where he wants this world. And uh, chapter 2 ends on a note of faith. 
I will deal with the Babylonians. I will deal with this evil, wicked nation. The just shall live by faith. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 4. Go back to verse 4. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. And here's the hinge to the whole book. Here's the key to the whole book. The just shall live by faith. The just, the righteous one, the one who's, who has experienced the, the imputed righteousness of Christ and is in a right relationship with God, that individual will live by his faith. God is our object and it bends out so that I live faithfully in the midst of, of, of all kinds of chaos in my life. And then we come to chapter three, the praising prophet. You see how it's shifted? The tone is shifted. Chapter three, look at chapter three, the prayer of Sabaoth, of Habakkuk, the, the prophet, according to the Siganoth. Siganoth is just kind of words that's been set to a musical term. And now we find him praying. The tone has changed. The atmosphere has changed. His heart has changed. There's a, there's a, a, there's a, a, a level of freedom. Now remember, he's, Habakkuk has just received word that his country will be overrun and taken captive by another nation. A new superpower is on the rise will sweep, sweep through and Judah will be laid bare. The security of the nation will be stripped away. There's fear and there's terror. Families will be broken up. Men will be killed. Children will be orphaned. Many will be deported to Babylon. And the curtain rises in chapter 3, and he's praying. And what we see is Habakkuk moving from lament and sadness and perplexity, understanding the just shall live by faith, into the realm of, of rejoicing. It's a, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture of how an individual... Um, um, processes their emotions and lines it up with truth so that their heart is free to express joy and rejoicings and praise in Christ. And so in the midst of his crisis, in the midst of waiting, in the midst, it doesn't make sense, they will still trust God to deliver them. And chapter 3, chapter 3 is really key because in, in verses 2 all the way to verses 15, all he does is he rehearses all right, God as the, 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 the warrior king who goes out before Israel and protects them, and he delivers them. In 3 through 7, he's the, he marches out as a warrior. He comes from the south to Mount Sinai to Moses, delivering them from Israel from, delivering Israel from, from Egypt, leading them into the land. His glory is overwhelming. Pestilence, pestilence and plague follow him. They are his tools that he uses to conquer the Egyptians. And he's saying, God, do the same for us with Babylon. That's, the, that, that, that's kind of what he's saying here. 8 through 11, God's power is demonstrated at the Red Sea as he rode upon the horses of his chariots. And you know the story in Exodus chapter 14. And they're delivered. In 12 through 15, God's power is in relationship again to the Egyptians and Pharaoh's armies. And it's interesting because in verse 12, look what God says. He says, you march through the earth in fury. You thresh the nations in anger. You march through the earth. That's what, that's what he said about Babylon. They're going to march through the earth and take captive other nations. 
But what he's appealing to in chapter 3, God, this is really what you did. You're the one that marched through the nations. You, you had Israel plunder the, 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 the Egyptians. And so what he does is he just rehearses God's deliverance in the history of Israel. Um, I'm in Justin's preaching class. My son's in Justin's preaching class. I, I think we have, what, eight in class, I think. And uh, it's really, it's a, it's a good class. And we're, we're reading a book entitled Preaching as Reminding. And in chapter one, he calls the, the pastor teacher to call God's people to remember what God has done because it will prompt them towards a heart of thanksgiving, towards repentance, raises hope, fosters humility, uh, exhorts obedience. And here's a quote from the book. If we have no memory, then we become adrift because memory is the mooring to which we are tied. Memory of the past interprets the present and charts a course for the future. That's exactly what Habakkuk's doing in chapter three. As he rehearses, it becomes the mooring, God's deliverance, deliverance from from the Egyptians. He's saying, now do that with with us and the Babylonians in your wrath and judgment. Remember mercy. And it becomes a mooring and a springboard for hope for the future. which gives way to what we find in verse 17. Let's read it again. What's he say? He says, therefore, he says, though the fig tree should not blossom. Have you ever had a fig? Anybody ever have a fig? Figs are sweet. Now, I can only get dried ones. I've never had a a real ripe fig. If you've been over to Israel, you probably have. There's not going to be fruit on the vines. Fruit on the vines means what? Can we say wine in this church? Wine, all right? Uh, the produce of the olive will fail, the olive, olive oil. Um, the fields yield no fruit. There's not going to be any vegetables. The flock be cut off from the fold. No sheep, no goats. There be no herd in the stalls. That would be the larger animals. All right, and what he's saying is if, if we lose all the covenantal blessings because of our disobedience, he says what in verse 18? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's feet. He makes me to tread on high places. And then he says to the choir master with string instruments. And so what takes place as he reviews the history of what God has done as a warrior king, it gives way to, to, to chapter 3, 17 through 19. I will walk by faith no matter what happens. And that's the story of Habakkuk. A perplexed prophet, a a, a patient prophet, but because by faith he he embodies what faith is all about, he comes back and he declares, I'm praising and I'm rejoicing because I know God will deliver. Now, what does that mean for us this morning? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? Let me share three things real quick with you, okay? There's a lot, applicationally, I think, that can be made from this. But number one, as you, as you continue to grow in your, in your faith walk and spiritual growth and development, Peter says at the end of chapter 2, 
that we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we do that, all right, understand, number one, it's okay to be honest with God. When you're struggling with his silence and perception of inactivity in your life and or his plans would, would be labeled grievous trials that he's designed for you, understand, you, you don't give God a bad hair day with your honesty. Over and over and over again in the Lament Psalms, we see raw honesty exemplified in, in, in Psalm chapter 13 with David and the prophets, even Job. And it's easy to say, God, I'll trust you when he blesses me, when he's looking out for me, when, when, when I'm prosperous and, 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 and everything in life works. I'll trust you, God. It, it just, I can do that. But what Habakkuk says and becomes a, um, a, a model for us, even if I lose it all, I will trust you. Even when I don't understand, I will trust you. And students, you go home and mom and dad pull you aside and you're in the living room and they say, mom and dad, sweetheart, we're going to split up. You're going to feel that. I will trust you. I'll walk by faith in the midst of it. I think the second thing would be this. Beloved, recommit to a lifestyle of faithfulness that grows out of your trust in God's promises. Okay. Recommit. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 of Romans. It's what, Hab it's what Habakkuk does. I mean, he's a godly man. He's a prophet. All right? He's on this real, you know, he's on this intimate level with God, and they're dialoguing back and forth. But what do we find in verses 17, 18, and 19? He's recommitting, and he's verbalizing, and he's stating out loud, you know, come hell or high water, I'm going to do that. I will walk by faith. He recommits. You know, three times, three times the New Testament, as we get into progressive revelation, three times we have the author of Hebrews that goes back and grabs Habakkuk chapter 2, 4 and brings it into the book of Hebrews. Paul goes back and grabs Habakkuk chapter 2 and brings it into Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and then Galatians chapter 3, I think it's verse 11. And so we find that phrase used in the New Testament three times. Now, in, in the book of Hebrews, um, the author of Hebrews uses it, I think, as it was intended in Habakkuk's day. We walk by faith. Because the author of Hebrews says, says, um, says this, and understand, the, the believers in Hebrews, they're, they're undergoing persecution and their land's being stolen from them by the authorities. All right? That's why they say forsake not the gathering because they would come in every Sunday and the, the body's getting, getting fewer and fewer and fewer because they're not coming to church because they don't want to be marked by the authorities and end up in, in prison. And that's why he says this in chapter 10, verse 37, for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, Christ. But my righteous one shall live by faith, Habakkuk 2, 4, and if he shrinks back, if he drifts, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. 
And so the Hebrew, the author of Hebrews grabs two, four, brings it here, encouraging believers and say, believers walk by faith. Don't shrink back. Don't drift. Don't neglect your salvation. So great a salvation that you have. Continue to minister together. Walk by faith in your, in your adversity. And I, 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 that's, a, that's a good application for people who are dealing with hardship. But then Paul uses it in Romans chapter 1, 16, 17, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, and he grabs it and he brings it to these two books and he uses it in a different way. And I've struggled for years. How can he get away with using that? Because he takes the just shall live by faith and he connects it with, with salvation. Right? Salvation by faith faith and not salvation by works of the law and in both of those he's kind of using that especially in Galatians and it's almost like he's taking it out of context but I think what he's doing in well in Romans chapter 1 16 and 17 he says this for I'm not ashamed of the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God for salvation for deliverance not just from the penalty of sin but from the power of sin as believers and from the presence of sin when we go home to be with Christ. For it's the power of God for deliverance or salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the just or the righteous one shall live by faith. And so what Paul does is he's writing to the, and even what he does in Galatians, he goes back and he grabs this, chapter 2, verse 4, the just shall live by faith, but he brings it into context and he uses it in an eschatological way or with Christ's coming. And he focuses on the, on the, on the, the bigger issue of Habakkuk and, and the promise of God to deliver Judah. I will deliver you. It's the message of Habakkuk. And Paul grabs that and he brings it to Romans and he brings it to Galatians because I've been wondering, where's the gospel? Where's Christ in the book of Habakkuk? And he grabs it and he brings it here. And he says, ultimate deliverance is not going to be found in God delivering Judah from Babylon, but it's going to be found in Jesus Christ. And he connects it with soteria, soteria, deliverance. Now, let me, let me just explain this. You and I have been delivered. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, we've been delivered from the penalty of sin, right? I bear it no more. And God's not going to take my sin from the past and accuse me of it because Christ dealt with it on the cross. He bore it. God laid on him Jim Riggle's iniquity, all my junk, he, Peter says Christ bore our sin in his body. So he took all my garbage from then and now and the future, put them on Christ, and God poured his wrath out on Christ and paid the penalty for sin. That's, that's one type of deliverance. But there's a second type of deliverance. We still have sin dwelling in our bodies. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, he says, mortify your flesh, kill your flesh, go on a mission, seek, hunt, and destroy. Seek, hunt, and destroy. Mortify it. Let me, mortify what? Look what he says in, in let me find it here, in Colossians chapter 3. He says, put to death, therefore, 
what is earthly in you. Prepositions matter. Here's what's in you. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Passion. Evil desire. Covetousness. Which is idolatry. And he goes on and he says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying to one another. These are the things that, that, that dwell within us that, 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 that continue to have a power, but because of this, Paul says, I want to know you, the power of your resurrection and fellowship, the power of the resurrection is to be able to say now for the first time, I can say no to sin. I'm not a slave to sin. That's, that's Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. You see, for the believer, it's not an issue that you can't. It's an issue that you don't and you won't. Did you get that? And so sexual immorality and pornography, it's not an issue that you can't. It's an issue that you don't and you won't. And we all have idols of our hearts. And so when Paul says it's the power of, it's the power of God unto salvation, the second one is, as, like, like, like Paul says in Philippians, he says, work out your salvation, your deliverance with fear and trembling. And so now I cooperate with God so that I can say no to sin and its power. But there's a third aspect that we really rejoice in. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 13, verse 11. He says, your salvation, your deliverance is nearer than the day you first believed. What does that mean? Well, I first believed August 16th, 1979. And now it's 2020. And so my salvation, my deliverance, my glorification, Romans chapter, Romans chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, it's nearer now than what it was August 16th, 1979. And so ultimate deliverance is going to be found in Jesus Christ. He's delivered us from the penalty of sin. He's in the process of delivering us from the power of sin. And ultimately, we will be delivered from the presence of sin. No more sin in my body. No more sin-cursed relationships. No more the sin-cursed world. I am out of here home. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 24, he says, Father, those whom you've given me, my desires that they might be with me to behold my glory. And when my wife died four years ago, November 5th, all of the 55 years of earthly joys, and there were thousands, were nothing but streams that when she died, gave way to an ocean of joy 10,000 times 10,000. Amen? And so when I'm struggling, and there's, I'm missing her, and just whatever I walk through, if I continue to focus on what I've lost, I can get depressed. But when I shift to what she has gained, Joy, 10,000 times 10,000. It's lifted. Because our ultimate deliverance is found in Christ. And that's why you and I walk by faith to end well. Amen? And so, beloved, be honest with your God. 
resolve to recommit your life to Christ and not shrink back from truth and the promises given by God and resolve to live in thanksgiving and gratitude that, that Christ is our final, ultimate deliverance It's found in Him. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Father, you know how weak and frail we are. The author that penned our hearts are prone to leave. The God we love is so true. But God, may your goodness be like a fetter that binds our wandering hearts. Father, some here this morning need to be encouraged in their faith. And in, in the Spirit of God, I would ask that you would take the Word of God to confirm and refresh and build up and encourage the child of God. And that's taking place within the, the, the covenant community of God here. And it prepares us to do the work of God. And so by faith, if, <laughs> Proverbs 4, 3, 5, and 6, Lord, we don't want to lean on our own wisdom, but we want to trust you, acknowledging you, and you will make our path straight. So this morning, we acknowledge you as Elohim, our strong one, the God from Genesis 1, the can-do God. We acknowledge you as Jehovah, Yahweh, from Exodus chapter 3, the ever-present, sufficient God. We acknowledge you from Genesis chapter 16, El Roy, the God that sees and ministers to our heart. We acknowledge you as Jehovah Ra'ah, the, the, the Lord is our shepherd. We don't want another shepherd. Give us contentment. Help us, not to, help us to be satisfied in you because you are Jehovah Jireh, the one that provides for us. You are El Elyon. You're over all that's taking place in this world. And so we acknowledge you for who you are. And the promise is you will make our path straight. And Lord, as you do that, it might be very different than how we perceive it. So strengthen our faith. May the evil one not snatch our faith and devour it with questions of doubt so we don't process like Jonah did, ending up on the east side of the city, pouting with a hard heart. But like Habakkuk, we rejoice in the God of our salvation. And all God's people said, Amen.